when we talk about the causes and conditions for us to progress in our practice of Dhamma Vinaya. And Jen Cha always emphasized that there has to be a sense of self-sacrifice or giving up to the practice. before one can experience the true peace and happiness that arises from the practice, one first has to give up certain things, sacrifice certain things. And this is the flavor of the practice right through from beginning to end but particularly in the beginning, it can seem a little daunting or difficult because the, the nature of world, the life in the world, lay life, is not necessarily thinking about giving up, sacrificing. It's often directed more to getting, gaining, having, which is why we suffer so much, this craving always leads to attachment, leads to becoming and existence, leads to birth, leads to old age, sickness, death, pain sorrow, grief, despair, and so on, as we chant. So the monastic practice involves giving up, letting go of craving. And we use the form and the way of practice, Dhamma Vinaya, to do that. We're studying and learning Dhamma Vinaya and then putting it into practice. So we see when we come into the monastery, we have to learn many things. We have to give up to the routine, the ways of behavior, the schedule in the monastery, the different practices, the lifestyle, one main meal a day, shaving the head, wearing robes, eating in a bowl or one vessel, not using money, not indulging in entertainments and so on. There's a lot of giving up and it at first can seem difficult. So we have to remind ourselves of the purpose of the practice, why we do this. And then be willing to have a go before we judge too harshly and say, oh, all this giving up, what's the point of it?
but just to gently turn our minds and our hearts in the direction of giving up sacrifice and see well what happens does it bring some peace and contentment as the Buddha taught as Ajahn Chah taught naturally as we give up some of our preferences or desires then there'll be some friction some dukkha but we can learn from that. We can learn to see how craving leads to dukkha. If we can give up craving, well, maybe we'll free ourselves from that dukkha, from that suffering. And little by little we grow in that skill and that understanding. So we become better at it, stronger in our own minds and hearts, more skilled. And by contemplating our own practice, we can see more on deeper levels, more refined levels, where we need to practice to give up, to let go, to sacrifice. The beginning of this in the monasteries, just to be willing to be at peace with the rest of the community and the lifestyle not to keep resisting or judging or finding fault with or whatever but just to learn how to accept the way things are even that in itself is quite an achievement but it's the first thing we have to learn Ajahn Chah was very clear that one has to learn just to develop a sense of um, kindness to the other members of the community as a starting point, emphasized harmony, harmony of the Sangha as an essential ingredient for fruitful Dhamma practice. And that takes some effort, some giving up. When we come into the Sangha, we don't just choose our friends anymore. As the Sangha is made up of many people from many different backgrounds, different places. So already we have to give up some of our former habits and preferences and accept the way things are. And there's many people, different people, older, younger different characters and so on. Ajahn Chah said if you develop that sense of harmony, it's like you're developing a sense of seeing others as your relatives, your Dhamma relatives, just as you look on your own family members to look on the other practitioners in the monastery. So it doesn't mean to say you'll necessarily agree with everything others do or say, but you have an underlying willingness to tolerate, to accept the others, to have respect for others. We begin with a respect for the teacher, is essential to respect the teacher, as the teacher and the other senior monks 
have to sacrifice generally more their time, energy and skill to run the monastery, to teach, to train, to help both the Sangha and laity. So the Buddha laid down the Vinaya is correct to show respect, to support teachers and senior monks, to practice a chariyavata, giving, uh, uh, attending to the needs of senior monks, showing respect, helping out. But then that extends out to all members of the community. We develop a sense of mutual respect for the new members, the old members, and so on. And develop the perception as if we're all family members or relatives. So just to say when you go home or you talk to your family members, they may have widely differing views on things than you. But you never hold it against them so much that you completely break with them or become a complete enemy to your family. There's still some underlying bond. Similarly, we're all connected in our faith and respect of Dhamma Vinaya. We have similar, we value the Dhamma Vinaya, so in that sense we're all like relatives. We're older brothers, younger brothers, uncles, fathers, sons, and so on. Or the laity that support us give up so much of their time and resources to allow the monastery to function are like relatives. Men, women, they're like brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, so on. That's a perception, a skillful attitude to develop in order to help let go of some of our basic selfishness or negativity that tends to come up towards other people, the fault-finding mind and so on. So Sangha life is based on harmony, mutual respect, which involves sacrificing sometimes. You sacrifice your own views and opinions on things, just give up to the, the way things are done, the practices, and sacrifices time, energy, to support the Sangha as a whole, the monastery, to help others individually or as a group. We can't always do things exactly the way we want. We get some freedom, but we also have to be flexible. And this helps both to, developing this helps to keep our minds more calm, more at ease, and also supports the peace in the community. Once we get this point, we understand this, then we express it in our daily routine, daily life. So we express it in the way we talk, the way we do things. So there's a harmony of the Sangha and respect for the Sangha means one is sometimes willing to put aside one's own needs sometimes for the needs of others or for the need of the community as a whole. One doesn't always put oneself first, what one wants to do. Sometimes that's allowed or possible. Sometimes 
it's not appropriate. We set aside our own needs for the needs of the monastery or the community. But as we practice Dhamma, we can see that doesn't cause any problem or go against the practice of Dhamma Vinaya. The main practice and quality we're developing is mindfulness. And one aspect of mindfulness is mindfulness of your actions, mindfulness of speech, mindfulness of the Vinaya, time and place and so on. the practice of mindfulness and development of mindfulness leads us to constantly be reviewing what we do, what we say and what we're thinking, our mental activity and to see the relationship between that and how we relate to the outside world how we spend our time and so on as mindfulness starts to improve during our practice in the monastery, then we become more aware of how we do things, what we're doing and why. Mindfulness is supported by this other quality, clear comprehension, sampajanya. There's always, as Ajahn Chah said, always questioning yourself. Why am I doing this? What am I doing and why? And then you answer yourself, and the answer helps you to become mindful and clear from moment to moment through your day. What are you doing and why? What's the purpose? You get to know that, get to know yourself better. So part of that is how you're relating to the community. Part of it is just how you're spending your time, maybe if you're on your own in your kuti. You're bringing up mindfulness, bringing the mind's attention to the present moment and asking, what am I doing? And then answering that. How well am I spending my time? The days and nights are relentlessly passing. So part of the mindfulness practice is learning to relate to other people skillfully to learn to do one's duties say as a bhikkhu or as a novice or an agarika one's learning what one's duties are the different duties we have to perform we have to do certain things we do chores, we learn chanting we meditate we eat, we bathe, we clean things all of these activities, we bring mindfulness to bear. We start to learn what our duties are and take responsibility for our actions. So we're constantly turning the attention back into ourselves, what we're doing, knowing what we're doing, and also being aware how we relate to others. As far as others go, once we've established this... Uh, quality of viewing others as say like Dhamma relatives and we can trust in the integrity of the community then we can let go a little bit Ajahn Chah said you don't have to spend all your time looking at others watching them because you tend to just find fault with others 
Maybe watch other people 10% of the time. Be watching over yourself 90% of the time. So you learn what you need to learn from others. You're aware of others. If they do any good, you can be aware of that. Give your anamodana, your appreciation to the good others do. If you notice some fault, some mistake others make, well, you can note that, but don't dwell on it. You know, just spend 10% of your energy aware of others and what they're up to. 90% of the time you've got to be watching yourself. So that means sometimes we have to be firm with ourselves. If you spend all your time judging others, you, you just won't see yourself. You have to be firm and take your own actions as your priority or responsibility. And as the Buddha always said, if you're responsible for your own actions, you'll automatically be helping others. If you do your meditation diligently, you pr learn to practice walking, sitting meditation regularly, learning to develop the skill of calming the mind, that helps other people. When they see you doing it, they get inspired. And the results of it is you're more calm, more content in yourself. When you do your duties, you learn to chant, you learn to do the chores, do the different duties that you're assigned, you do them well, well, that's inspiring others and setting a good example to others without having to say a single word. But we have to value this point because as soon as we lose our mindfulness, the mind goes back, slips into judging other people. And maybe they don't try as hard as I do. They're more lazy, more sloppy. They don't seem to meditate as much as me. They don't do the chores as much as me. They leave their stuff out for other people to clean and so on. The mind just gets caught up in that, but it ends up in negativity, judging, suffering. So one might notice other people's faults and weaknesses. If one's not in a position to really help them or teach them, then one just goes back to oneself. Do I do that? You see somebody sitting meditation falling asleep. Do I do that? Do I nod? Do I rock up and down with sleepiness like that one? Rather than judging them and looking down on them, you turn back and look at yourself. Do I do that? Or if you find some mess, somebody's had a drink and didn't wash their cup or clean their spoon, instead of getting negative with it or angry, just turn back and say, do I do that? Am I lazy with my own chores and looking after my own requisites? We keep turning the attention back to ourselves so that we heighten our mindfulness, sense of duty, responsibility. This way we can help the community as well and help ourselves, obviously. Learning what our duties are and learning how to meditate in all postures, bringing up the practice of mindfulness. Sometimes teachers, senior monks, they help us with this. If you live with 
teachers like Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabua, when they were active, and they often asked monks, what are you doing? And walk along the path or walk into the hall and see somebody, you might walk straight up and say, what are you doing? The very first time Ajahn Mahabua saw me in his monastery, he walked up said, who are you, where are you from? Straight away. said, I'm from Ajahn Chah's monastery, Ajahn Chah's Sangha. He said, oh, Ajahn Chah is a good teacher. If you have a good teacher, then you have a chance to progress in the Dhamma. Oh, another monk, that same day another monk was sweeping. He walked up to him and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm just sweeping leaves. That's okay, there's no problem. He's just asking him, what are you doing? Sometimes the practice of mindfulness or the presence of someone else who has mindfulness can seem intimidating, but it's actually just mindfulness. It just is what it is. If you think about it, these teachers, they don't have any anger or they're not bullies. They're simply out of compassion, encouraging mindfulness in their students. They may ask a direct question just to help bring your mind to the present moment. Think more deeply, what am I doing right now? Where am I? What am I doing? But in the end, we have to do this for ourselves. You have to learn how to bring up mindfulness in all postures at all times. This is the way the mind starts to gather together in samadhi, the continuous presence of mindfulness. And the lifestyle that supports that. So if you're ever caught into the doubt, you know, what should I be doing? How should I spend my time? Or is this a good way to spend my time? We can look at the results, see whether it's supporting more stability of mind through the presence of more mindfulness. Often activities that we find we can do, we're skilled at, can help us to develop mindfulness. You can learn to chant, you learn the words, then it helps to bring up mindfulness. You learn to walk meditation for a whole hour without stopping. To be content to do that, to keep directing the mind to the, to the practice. That becomes a skill that you can use and become good at and it will bring up more mindfulness as you develop it. Or cleaning. Ajahn Chah said you could become, as a bhikkhu, you can become foremost in many different things in the monastery, meaning you can really use the lifestyle to develop mindfulness and do a job well to bring up wholesome states of mind, like mindfulness and energy and faith. And there was the young monk who used to always clean the shrine with a duster, Ajahn Chah called him foremost in dusting. He dust the Buddha statue or every day very well and wipe the shrine down with a damp cloth. Wouldn't allow any dust to be left. Always did it very carefully with a lot of attention. And he didn't 
get caught in thoughts, you know, this is just a lowly job, or nobody else does this, why do I have to do this? All those kind of more normal reactions and complaints the mind might have. You'd learn to set them aside and just use that simple task as a way to develop mindfulness and energy. And is very content to do that. And when mindfulness is strong, even the most mundane task can become quite enjoyable and a vehicle for developing your practice, keeping your mind in a wholesome state and bringing up energy. When you lose your mindfulness, then the mind will get caught back into its old habits of judging and reacting. So you might do some basic chore and think, oh, why do I have to do this? Nobody else does this. Oh, I should be doing something more inspiring than this. I should be meditating or I should be doing something very special, not this ordinary thing. You know, that's the judging negative mind proliferating and the result of that it just leads into more thinking agitation. You know, if you develop mindfulness in whatever you're doing, whatever situation, it can be an opportunity to bring the mind to the present moment bring up a wholesome state. Ajahn Chah always used these sort of simple reflections to help monks to just remind them what they're doing and what the direction of the practice is to help bring up mindfulness. Eat little, sleep little, talk little. It was a constant refrain. It didn't mean never eat, never sleep, never talk. But the word little means you, know, you choose your time, you choose the amount, you consider what is the right amount for eating, for sleeping, for talking. These are three of the big distractions for one developing mindfulness. One can easily overindulge in eating, just enjoy the food to the point where one just becomes very unmindful, maybe overeats become sluggish and so on. Or talking, we can talk and talk and talk for hours, completely losing awareness and just indulging. They had a, used to have a saying in Wapapong, when two monks get into the habit always talking, 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 they always find interesting things to talk about, but in a sort of unmindful way. They always say the first hour they enjoy it, the second hour comes a struggle and they end up arguing. Even though they start off all happy and enjoyable, they end up arguing because it's just the way of human beings. The more you talk, you end up disagreeing over things. So after you've seen that a few times, then you become more careful. You understand why Lajan Chah said, well, talk little, meaning you talk enough to get things done, discuss Dhamma, to know what has to be done, maybe to help somebody and so on, but you also know the dangers of talking too much, leading into unmindful states of mind. And where do you see the result or when you come to meditate? If you've been talking for two hours, it will take another hour just to calm down when you meditate. Or if you meditated for an hour and you become calm, then you go away and talk for two hours, well, it's all gone again. Ajahn Chah said, we're like 
leaky water jars and you fill it all up with all this mindfulness and effort to get the mind calm and stable and then you have a lot of talking and it's like your water jar springs holes and the water starts shooting out you can never keep it full so sleeping is same you know, we sleep as medicine to keep the body healthy to keep it strong but not as an end in itself or a distraction in itself so we have to start training observing ourselves how much do we need there's no one answer to this but the, the guideline is well sleep little meaning sleep just enough to keep healthy and strong but not so much it just becomes an indulgence because again like eating and talking sleeping too much leads to more sluggish states of mind more daydreaming more confusion lack of clarity this is where in the using the daily routine using the form the monastic form we have the opportunity to study sleeping eating talking to find out the right amount and keep refining that that knowledge and we'll see if we want to really develop mindfulness well we have to use our mind to contemplate these things think about these things Think about the requisites that we use. You know, how much do we need? It's not that we have to be putting ourselves under pressure by you know, using so little that we're struggling with the cold or with hunger or with just making life very difficult for ourselves. But we don't want to indulge either and spend that time always trying to get more and better requisites better accommodation, better robes, better food. We find a balance by using wise reflection and mindfulness, just bring mindfulness up when we're eating, as we use our robes, as we use the requisites. The result of all this training in mindfulness, clear comprehension and wise reflection is you're training the mind to bring up mindfulness and contemplate Dhamma from day one in the monastery. You're learning, you're studying. Your monastery is a place to study and learn Dhamma through your practice. So you're actually training yourself, training your mind, training body, speech and mind. And this all gathers together and gives its result when you come to sit meditation or walk meditation you're practicing meditation using an object such as the breath or buddha or recollection of death or the metta brahmavihara all of these objects require you to direct your mind's attention to the object you're training in these qualities vitaka vichara applied thought sustained thought if you've already been training in mindfulness and wise reflection through your day in different activities, or when you come to sit down to meditate, it's already prepared for the meditation. There's not a lot of 
groundwork you have to do, you've already been doing that through your day. So when you come to sit down, the vitaka vichara has already been trained. So you turn your mind to the object, to the breath, say. And you're learning about your breath, observing it, long, short, coarse, refined, you're knowing it. And you're able to wisely reflect on your breath, so you're not just judging it again or complaining about how difficult it is to watch the breath or whatever object it is. You're just knowing it and bringing up this quality of knowing. And whatever thoughts, discursive thoughts, the wandering mind come up, one is catching that, contemplating it, letting it go without judging oneself again, thinking too much, this, that, the other. One has again that sense of respect, in this case respect for oneself and acceptance of the way things are as one's starting to meditate. We've all made plenty of karma in this world. We've thought a lot, we've done a lot, been here, been here, been there. And this is coming up as we sit down to meditate. You're experiencing the results of karma your feelings, your perceptions, your thoughts, the way your body is, that's your karma. So you have no choice but to accept this is the way it is, this is the nature of it. Rather than judging it or feeling disappointed if your mind is not particularly peaceful, if it's thinking a lot, you have to accept this is karma showing itself, the results of karma. But then to return to the basic practice of mindfulness applied to the breath and to keep coming back to that. Ajahn Chah said we have to learn to let go of every desire if we're going to do this properly. So even the desire to be peaceful, the desire to attain, we have to learn to let go of it otherwise it will also be an obstacle getting in the way and causing, stirring us up we often have a desire to be peaceful. You know, vitaka, which are leads on to piti and sukha, the rapture and the contentment and then the one-pointedness. So we have a desire for all these things, to experience them. Maybe we've experienced them before, we've read about them, heard about them. And that can be an obstacle. When am I going to calm down? When am I going to have some peace? I want peace, I need peace all the different views, opinions we can have about it only to serve to cause more confusion in the mind. Even though of course we do want peace, the practice is aiming at developing these qualities. That's true. But the very desire for it, if craving comes in, becomes an agitation to the mind and leads on to despair and disappointment if we haven't yet got peace. So we have to observe this, learn from this as we're meditating. Look at our attitude and the way we're thinking about the meditation. Bring the mind back to just vitaka vichara, applying the mind to the object and sustaining the awareness there with the breath, knowing the breath in and out, and letting go of all the other stuff. Just allow it to come up and then let it go not to judge it, not to worry about it.
just to relax and keep sustaining attention on the object. We often want the mind to get into a perfect state, either one we remember from the past or that we've created in our, our mind's eye through our imagination. It must be this way. So again, if it's not that way, then we suffer. Either way, it's like picking up the snake. Zanjan Chah said, you, nobody likes dukkha. That's the head of the snake, grasping the head of the snake when we attach to dukkha. So we tend to go for sukha. We want pleasure. We want more pleasurable experiences. It's like grasping the tail of the snake. Seems better, but still the head will turn around and bite us. If you keep grasping at pleasure and wanting pleasure, well, you'll get disappointed. Either the pleasure doesn't come or you can't hold on to it. It disappears because it's still impermanent. So this quality of mindfulness we've been developing in through our day in all these postures and different activities, you apply it just in the same way in your meditation. Being willing to know your experience but to let it go without judging it as you're turning to the breath whatever else happens doesn't matter even if you feel tired or some pain or you have a lot of mental distraction worry or anger you're not creating anything else on top of that returning to the breath this is one of the skills of meditation, just to keep being willing to let go of these moods and thoughts. Because in the end they are just conditions of mind, just like the body is not self, the mind and its thoughts are not self. They're just conditions coming up, fueled by our karma. We've thought like this many times before, so it's coming up. But if we don't get involved with it, we just let it go, let it be, then it will pass away by itself. The problem comes when we lose our mindfulness and we start getting involved with it all, feeding it and fueling it. Gradually dissipate our energy and then we end up not peaceful and then dissatisfied because we're not peaceful. And on and on it goes. You have to learn then to keep dropping it, coming back to the breath. And sometimes we do have to apply the techniques. If you have a lot of anger in your mind, habitually will bring up more metta, more compassion. If you have a lot of lust and sensual desire, or keep contemplating impermanence, or death, or a super. We can use different contemplations to remedy certain habits of mind, but in the end our aim is to drop it all, to come to one-pointedness, eka kata. And as we're doing this in the process of dropping and letting go, well, the mind starts to experience more joy, more rapture. This is what Ajahn Chah is called the food of the heart, pity, food of the mind, because this is what sustains you, like food sustains us in the body for our day. Pity, as it starts to come up, sustains us in the practice. It's both that sense of interest and enjoyment to be meditating on the breath 
or to be contemplating Dhamma of one aspect or another. When there's that interest, then it's no longer boring. It's no longer irritating or frustrating. So pity puts an end to that, but it's not something you can force until maybe you're more skilled in meditation, you can turn to pity. But at first you can only develop pity by doing the first steps of vitaka vichara, directing the mind to the object, sustaining it there, patiently enduring until the mind settles down and pity quite naturally arises by itself. Joy, joy of wholesome states of mind. So when one letting go of sensual desire and anger and ill will, pity starts to arise. And that refines into sukha, contentment, where the mind seems to become more and more stable more content in itself to be with the breath as the breath the mind is starting to unify with the breath that coolness that pervades the body and the sukhavetana that comes with it but there's no way that you can have that by just grasping at it or forcing it you have to allow it to happen naturally through letting go of the hindrances and the distractions and just turning to the object as the mind becomes more calm and satisfied just to meditate. And this is also the product of all that other mindfulness practice in daily life, all the mindfulness, the talking little, sleeping little, eating little, contentment with the requisites, uh, the compassion, the respect for other members of the community, all of these factors will be flowing into that practice of vitaka, vitachara, piti sukha until it reach, reaches one-pointedness. It all supports that practice of your meditation. There's no way you can just sit down and with willpower just sort of force the mind to calm down and be content and calm by itself. One has to be nourishing the mind with the right, right qualities through the day and be patient enough to and willing enough to keep going even when sometimes one's tired and various moods, reactions come up. Sometimes the contemplation will support the arising of these factors of samadhi. One just contemplates Dhamma, reminds oneself that this is an dukkha anatta. You know, all thought is not self. These are mental formations one can pull back from them, not feed them or allow them to cause more confusion in the mind. One just pulls back, steps back, allows them to rise and pass away. All sense consciousness is not self. So we limit the sense stimulation. We don't have to look and see and hear so much. We'll always be looking and hearing some things, but we limit it so it's not too overstimulating. That's part of our sila as well. We can just contemplate these things. These things are not self, impermanent. So we can quietly let them go on their way. The body is not self. Mind is not self. Thoughts are not self. Perception is not self. Liking, disliking, not self. The mind keeps returning to stillness. 
emptiness with the quality of knowing. So either that contemplation can bring the mind to one-pointedness or by calming the mind down on the breath then that state of calm one can then contemplate to see the not-self of experience not to grasp at it and identify with it. If the mind is very calm then one can even contemplate dukkha the dukkha of pain or tiredness of different memories and perceptions or unpleasant experiences one has. Just see them as just that much, just an unpleasant experience. It's just an unpleasant experience. Pain is just pain. Unpleasant words, sight, sound, taste, smell, memories, perceptions are just that. When the mindfulness is sustained, the mind calms down. You little by little experiences more samadhi, kanika samadhi, upajara samadhi. Then one uses that to contemplate experience and not self. See, the body is made up of four elements. There's no real person in that. Earth is earth, air is air, fire is fire, water is water. The mind is elements. You're seeing, you say, just contemplate one sense, the sense of seeing. There's an eye, which is element. There's an object that the eye is seeing, that's an element. And then eye consciousness, chakuvinyana arises, and that's an element. And there's no self in that. Seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing. So in the end one is training the mind using this mindfulness that one sustains to contemplate in this way using the monastic form, the training, different ways of training, different modes of training to bring up mindfulness so that one can start to contemplate more deeply. One has to keep reviewing practice and looking back at how one is developing mindfulness and what may, one may do to improve things. Sometimes we take on more, uh, improve our sense of personal discipline by maybe taking on certain practices, say to sleep a certain number of hours or to eat food in a certain way. You know, if you have a lot of problems with thinking a lot about food that you like, then they say, well, put it all in the bowl and mix it around. So the sweets and the curries, the salads, the savouries, everything just mixes around, just as it does in your stomach. You contemplate, oh, this is just the four elements, feeding the body, keeping it going. And let go of all the reactions, the craving and the attachments that might come up as you're doing that gives you a certain independence of mind. You feel more free from the habitual sort of reactions and craving for different kinds of food. Or sleep, if you have problems getting up in the morning, well, use an alarm clock and set a time when you're going to get up. And before you go to bed, determine in your mind, when I reach that time, I'll get up at that time. And just take it as a personal challenge. Can I follow my own decision and keep to it for a period of weeks or months, period of time. 
you train yourself like this to go against craving and attachment in different ways using the Vinaya, using the mindfulness, using the contemplation, whatever works to bring the mind more clarity through the present moment. And little by little this is the way our mind can gather together and experience more peace for itself. So I'll leave you with these words for your contemplation tonight. <laughs> 